What I'm going to present to you today is a work in progress. As such, I'm open to changes, suggestions, recommendations, criticism, which I'm sure I will highly uh, benefit from. So I'm waiting for a Q&A today, and also please feel free to email me anytime, and I'll appreciate that. Before going into details, Central Bank Digital Currency, or CBDC, as an object of research, can be for those who study science, technology, and society, what a stellar collision between two stars is for those who study astronomy. It's a rare event happening in front of us now, no matter what comes out of the idea and the technology, if at all, it's an opportunity to explore the convergence of technologies and how the development of financial information technologies and infrastructures further changes what we know about the role of nation states in a global world, technological change, social change, and freedom. As we will see, this topic has some of the most powerful actors in the world participating, shaping technologies, regulation, our global economy, and of course, our everyday life. Okay, so that's the plan for today. And before, before we get to what is CBDC, what's going on today, and discuss the ethical concerns we have for tomorrow, I wish to establish the background story that will help put everything in the right, in the right context. So let's begin. So much and yet also nothing changed since Georg Zimmel's famous claim that money is the purest example of the tool. It still is, and money is also changing. We are living in interesting times where some of us witnessed a lot of this change, the birth of credit cards, the shift from the gold standard, entering the digital age, and so much more. So just to quickly cover uh, the very long history of money before we begin, see this lovely development. And in a more serious tone, I wish to focus on two relatively recent events happening between 2007 and 2009 that are very relevant for our story today. The first, the financial meltdown following the subprime mortgage crisis where, where central banks around the world and specifically in the United States were criticized for the too big to fail approach for bailing out commercial banks. I won't go into any details about these events, but it's relevant to the second thing that happened. And I'm sure some of you know exactly what's next and it's the birth of Bitcoin. Bitcoin was born due to the lack of trust in governments and the financial sector. So under the alias of Satoshi Nakamoto, whose true identity or identities remain unknown and mysterious, as many of you know, the ideology behind Bitcoin was embedded in the Genesis block, the first block in the Bitcoin blockchain. The Genesis block contains a message. It says, Chancellor on bring of second bailout for banks. This message refers to a headline from the Times dated January 3rd, 2009. Having this headline on the Genesis block is both a proof for the creation of the block on or after that date, and more importantly for our story, an ideological message about the lack of trust in governments and in traditional banking system. And this idea quickly became one of the main themes of Bitcoin. Trust, or in this case, distrust. The ideology behind Bitcoin and many cryptos that came after was to liberate the monetary policy of the currency from the control of any central bank. Fast forward to today, and we have thousands of cryptocurrencies and other crypto assets. There's also a rise in financial possibilities that are now technically open for anyone. 
yield farming staking, DeFi, prediction markets, flash loans, asset tokenizations, ICOs, ISOs, DAOs, and the latest trio, NFTs, Metaverse, and Web3. And forgive me for not mentioning everything and for not going into more details. What's important is that they are all financial infrastructures, assets, securities, derivatives, services, and instruments, and technologies of the future that the crypto world opened and developed. Gradually, countries and their central banks, and sometimes also parts of the traditional financial institutions, seems to be worried by it. And let me add, with genuine good reasons. So usually, mainstream concerns about cryptocurrencies speak of legal and financial risks, and also environmental concerns. And there's also a less discussed concern, which I wish to raise, and that's an alternative to nation states and traditional financial institutions. The threat is that people will ditch the local currencies and adopt cryptocurrencies. We'll get to that later, and please keep that in mind. With these thoughts and with this background, let me introduce you to Central Bank Digital Currency. I'll explain what is it and how is it different from the digital nature of our economy today. I'll stop to make it clear that CBDCs will not be here tomorrow morning. Nevertheless, I'll make the case that this is the perfect timing to go into the ethical concerns it raises. I'll discuss some of the advantages of CBDC and I'll end up this section with some of the open technical possibilities that we'll meet again when we'll get to the section about ethical concerns. Just a quick note, I won't speak of any specific implementation in a certain country, but about CBDC in general. So the simplest way to define a CBDC is as a digital form of fiat money issued by a central bank. It's important to say by a central bank because there are many currencies today that can, again, technically be issued by anyone. And we'll see that later. CBDC will not necessarily be implemented instead of cash or other forms of money. And it might be complementary. In addition, at least over the implementation stage, and maybe gradually cash will disappear. There are many ways to design CBDCs. We'll soon explore the two main kinds. But for now, please keep in mind that when I speak of CBDC, I mean a kind that is intended for the public usage, termed retail CBDC, that has many versions too. So some of you may ask, how is CBDC different than current money? Because anyway, most of the money in the economy is digital, right? So CBDC is characterized as a claim on a central bank and not as a liability of a private financial institution. Let me further explain this point. When I hold cash, the legal tender in a country, the central bank is liable to it and the law says that I can use it. It's what we refer to as a direct claim on a central bank. The dollar in my bank account is not the same as the dollar that I hold in cash. The dollar in the bank is more of a promise in a way that the bank will give me a dollar in cash if I request it. And the same goes for all cashless payments forms, bank transfers, credit card payments, PayPal, or any other digital payment services. I can have the money transferred to my bank account and then redeem it as cash. So the digital digits we see in our bank accounts are claims on the financial institution and the commercial banks end up having their own businesses with the central banks. With CBDC, the claim is on the central bank, just like cash today, but this time it's digital. So ultimately these are different claims on different institutions. Imagine the everyday technologies of tomorrow, machines paying to machines, autonomous cars automatically paying insurance for the exact drive and route. 
your smartphone or, or smart glasses, micro paying to access articles, or your face lets you just walk out from your favorite store with groceries. They'll know who to charge and you get the idea. You can't pay for the transactions between machines with cash, but it's already possible to do it with many of the technologies of today, with credit cards, e-transfers, and many other digital payment services. CBT, CBDC offers a way for the countries to, to catch up with the transactions of the future without resorting to payment services. And as such, it's similar to cash since technically there's no need for intermediaries and it's similar to existing payment services since it's digital. So it's best from all worlds. A few things to put on the table before I continue. Central bank digital currencies have not been fully implemented in any major democratic country yet. In fact, and this is really important, it's not likely for it to be fully implemented anytime soon. Currently, there are way too many challenges. I conceptually divide them to the following categories, regulations, technical and social. Regulation wise, this is a very complex landscape to regulate and we can go into that over the Q&A. As for the technical challenges, first, the architecture of the system is not yet clear. And I'll definitely say a word about that when I cover the open technical possibilities. Second, be sure that no central bank in this world would implement a technology that is not working 100%. Socially, certain kinds of CBDCs under certain scenarios can completely change the existing power structure. Also, the idea of CBDC is still being shaped and developed and different countries take different routes to it. And, and third, there are the ethical concerns and some of them are really, really serious as I'll argue later in the presentation. To conclude this slide, I want to be clear that no one's knocking on the door with the idea and technology ready for tomorrow morning. We're not there yet. And this is exactly why I believe we're in crucial timing to inspect the idea of CBDC and related technological choices. How can we leverage technologies to create a better and more inclusive financial system? We don't have the privilege to leave this question solely to those who develop technologies and to those who have more control on the financial system. Okay, so what's so good about CBDCs? First and most important, it's digital. This means that a national digital economic system produces immense amounts of data from which insights can be extracted. It's very likely that AI produced insights will assist human decision makers and also automated processes. This leads me to the crucial point that CBDC in a way is programmable money. It's possible to program the automatic usage of the money with technologies, what the crypto world calls smart contracts. Uh, mostly for the automated transactions between machines that I mentioned just earlier. But there's also a second meaning of programming the properties of the money. For example, the money supply can be adjusted to automatically issue or deduce the amount of money in circulation. And it will be also possible to program the interest rates on currency holdings, all according to certain parameters that would be possible to set and measure. So CBDC can enable process automation in the heart of the economic system, the monetary policy. All of these properties can give central banks much better control on the value of the currency 
especially in times of uncertainty and inflation, which today are found in almost every nation. The digital ability to trace the money routes enable anti-money laundering, war on crime, and tackling the financing of terrorism. It also enables accurate, and if you will, automatic tax collecting. No less important, it makes tax, taxes much harder to evade. Third, the inclusion of populations that are unbanked. And this means that having economically excluded populations included, and that's awesome. That's really, that's a really powerful point. And that's a huge point, especially for, for emerging markets and, and developing economies. Obviously, these abilities aren't monetary objectives per se of any central bank, but these three promises are almost always mentioned as social advantages of, of CBDC. The first to require tracing the money routes and tracing money routes is not compatible with complete privacy. And of course, I'll, I'll mention this later. There are more advantages, like for example, um, transparency that this system can produce for auditing or for developing uh, services, or also for effective money dispersers, such as digital helicopter money or, or digital stimulus checks that can be very effectively be distributed. To sum up, overall, the digital nature of the transactions, the data, the programmable aspects of money and its automation will open new possibilities and give central banks much better control over their monetary policies so that they can make sure that the economies are stable. The next part is about technical aspects of it. So as I hinted at the beginning, there are two main types of models. And the primary distinction is between the models of retail CBDC and the wholesale CBDC. Retail CBDC is intended for general purpose and to be widely accessible by the public. It brings the digital developments to the end users, the households and small businesses. Wholesale CBDC is less for individuals and more for financial institutions. It is intended to make the interbanking and cross-border payment services much more efficient. Available technologies from the cryptosphere work so much better than the traditional payment services. And those who move a lot of money absolutely know that. And actually, anyone here who ever made an international transfer to the bank branch and then did the same with crypto, know that with crypto, it takes seconds. Like, seriously, just like texting from your number to someone else's number, but instead of a number, of course, it's a, it's a wallet address. And this is true also for non-individuals, for institutions who move a lot of money. Working with new fintech technologies is so much more efficient than working with the old ones. Anyways, countries know that too. And there are already a few wholesale pilots running between countries, including the Canadian project Jasper, which experimented with projects from England and Singapore. Back to retail CBDC. A fundamental distinction is between direct CBDC and indirect CBDC. Direct CBDC means that the consumer is engaging directly with the central bank. This model is a game changer. It has the potential to transfer many of the functions that are operated by commercial banking to the central bank. To say it differently, direct CBDC is to have the financial infrastructures and services at the hands of the countries through the central banks. Central banks will operate the accounts and the wallets. As much as I know, no central bank in this world is actually considering this model, and I doubt we'll see it. On the contrary, legislation in some places already begin to bar central banks from offering products and services directly to individuals. But direct CBDC is definitely discussed in all the literature. 
The indirect CBDC model, which is known as the two-tier system or hybrid or synthetic CBDC is very similar to what's going on today in a way since it keeps the intermediaries, the commercial banks and other financial institutions. It usually has two meanings. The first meaning is a monetary meaning of, of having two tiers of currencies. The central bank issues a CBDC and the commercial banks create their own liability for the general public. The second meaning is about the distribution aspect. In this scenario, the central bank issues a CBDC and lets the commercial banks distribute it to the general public. So it's still two layers, but the claim is, the claim is on the central bank. And there are also other models and mixtures, but the direct and indirect are the archetypic ones. And these two meanings for the uh, indirect CBDC are mostly discussed. So there are also other technical issues. For example, how will the access to CBDC be? Through updating the records about the accounts or by updating the records on the tokens? Because in many cryptos, each token is, is painted. Each token has its own uh, history and ownership. Another open technical aspect is DLT, distributed ledger, ledger technology. This is the technology underlying blockchains and the technical discussions are whether or not DLTs would be faster, cheaper and more secure options to go with. It seems that for the wholesale CBDC, DLTs are a great solution. For the retail, well, it's debated. The last example that I have here is whether the CBDC will be designed to bear interest and at what rate or not. Basically, interest on CBDC means competition with commercial banks' money, and negative interest means paying a fee for saving. So that was in short, and now we'll proceed to the motivations for designing and implementing CBDCs. So overall, countries must protect their monetary sovereignty, and central banks must make sure that the financial stability is kept. There's no way to do it without controlling the currency. CBDC, as I argued before, might give a lot more control. So let's understand the motivations and end up this section with what at stake here. Dominating the world's market, no less, in times of an interconnected, maybe fragile, global economy. More and more of the things we buy are with digital means, such as uh, with credit cards, uh, apps, tapping with our phones, and who knows what's next. As one report mentions from the Bank of Canada, Cryptocurrencies probably get more media attention than they are actually being used as means of payment. Currently, only a small number of enthusiastic people use it on a regular basis, and only a relative small number of merchants actually accept cryptocurrencies. However, traditional payment providers such as Visa and MasterCard, but also so many others, already provide ways for their customers to pay with cryptocurrencies. Currently, adopters have to convert the cryptocurrencies to pay for things that are sold in the local currency. But cryptocurrencies are no longer on the, on the fringe of the financial system, and global crypto adoption is on the rise. It's not unlikely that over time, many merchants will accept cryptocurrencies too. When that will happen, it will be unnecessary to convert crypto to the local currency for buying something. Things will also be priced and sold in cryptocurrency. On a large scale, when people stop using the local currency, it's a threat to nation states who wish to control their own currencies and what's going on in their markets. Without the innovative and competitive nature of the CBDC, 
people are likely to adopt other means of payment that are not the local currency. So when we discuss competition and risk, it's fair to say that it's risk because cryptocurrencies aren't safe. They raise legal and financial concerns and competition because people adopt other currencies. So let's focus on some headlines, really just a few to get a sense of it. Bitcoin competes with the US banking system. This is the SEC chairman from December. Here's one of the 10 most popular blog posts in the IMF's website in 2021. December 14th, about a month ago, Russia opens their CBDC pilot to foreigners. Two days later, we see headlines about the central bank of the um, Russian Federation seeking to ban investments in crypto. They see the rising number of crypto transactions as a threat to financial stability. This is from India for November. And this is Indonesia Central Bank seeing CBDC as a means to fight crypto. Now, Indonesia is a very interesting case study to follow because estimates discuss more than 60% of its massive population is unbanked. And many of them do have access to the internet. We can discuss that later. That's a bit from Central America. That's Mexico struggling to keep up with cartels embracing crypto. And a few weeks later, we see headlines about Mexico planning to issue CBDC. Interesting to see that they discuss financial inclusion. And we can discuss that later too. That's the last example that I bring here, though there are many more. Here's the European Central Bank pleading for countries to develop CBDC. They won not from Bitcoin, but from the tech sector. We'll get to that soon. To sum up, so far we've seen international organizations, governments, and central banks worry from decentralized cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin, but also the European Central Bank warning from the tech sector. Let's dig into that and see competition from the tech sector. And also, let me add, geopolitical and economic competitions between nations. To understand the competition, we have to go into something that is called stablecoin. Now, to those of you who haven't heard of stablecoins or heard about it just a little bit, in short, and that's really in short, stablecoins are cryptocurrencies that attempt to offer price stability by being pegged to an external uh, value like gold or in the most common cases, um, the US dollar. So for example, one stablecoin that is pegged to the US dollar is worth in theory close to one US dollar. So that's a cryptocurrency and theoretically its value is a dollar. Stable coins have various usages. And again, in short, it's fair to say that they allow traders to, to change the volatile cryptocurrencies to stable coins, which are, um, well, stable. There's so much more to it, but what's relevant to my point here is that they're usually, that they're really useful in the world of crypto and payments, but are not issued by any central banks yet. And those who actually issue stable coins have to back the coins, or at least supposed to back the coins with a reserve to, to, to so issuers of stable coins need to have a lot of money um, for the liquidity in reserve, especially to prevent um, um, uh, solvency where everybody wants out at the same time. Therefore, currently, the stablecoins are mostly issued by, issued by exchanges, um, but I guess we'll see more coming perhaps from consortium of banks. And the most dominant US-pegged stablecoins are Tether, uh, uh, ultimately owned by Bitfinex, 
USD coin issued by Center, which is a consortium founded by Circle and Coinbase, BUSD uh, issued by Binance, and Pax Dollar by, by Paxos. Now, there are, of course, many more, and, and they all work really hard to collaborate with traditional and novel uh, payment services. To illustrate it, I'll just give the example of Pax, but it applies to all of them, seriously. Pax partnered with PayPal that integrated with the payment service uh, Venmo, and then with MasterCard, and also collaborated with Novi Wallet um, that now enables WhatsApp to transfer payments. And I hope you're still with me. There's more to come later. I wish to give two more examples of stable coins. In addition to the stable coins issued by central entities, such as exchanges, there are also decentralized stable coins. TerraUSD is perhaps the best example with a very interesting and novel business model and a market cap already surpassing 10 billion US dollars, which clearly says something about its adoption and usage. Stable coins can also be issued and will probably be issued by tech giants. I want to focus on one particular example that will probably be issued by the company that I just mentioned, Novi Wallet, previously called Calibra, which will one day store DM, formerly known as Libra, expected to be issued by Facebook, that you already know that is now known as Meta. And I hope you followed me on that one too. Meta has a massive user base. So if, so um, when they decide to have their own coin, its adoption will be huge and worldwide and it will have, it will have a, a very low barrier for entry. More concentration of power, more privacy and antitrust concerns from this corporation. It's like the old news that are just uh, likely to reappear in a much greater scale. Maybe a CBDC will be a good alternative to commercial options. Let's get into the real deal, the macro processes. Dollarization is roughly the process of the US dollar being more dominant on economies of the world, and its dominance is arguably declining. Cryptocurrencies and stablecoins are becoming really popular, and their widespread usage is something that those who want to keep the US dollar as the most dominant currency in the world might worry about. They also worry from other dominant economies and their currencies, especially when the former governor of the People's Bank of China says that preventing the dollarization is one of the major design points of China's national digital currency. And China is already running a huge scale pilot, now in a very advanced stage. So we have decentralized crypto like Bitcoin and, and TerraUSD. We have privately issued stable coins from consortium and exchanges, soon probably from huge corporations and banks. And there's China CBDC, but also maybe the Euro dollar or any other influential economy, all about to change the dominance of the US dollar. Having said that, maybe a massive adoption of stable coins that are pegged to the US dollar, even if issued privately, will maintain the US dollar as dominant. So there are big question marks floating for all economies worldwide. Should countries ban crypto and have their version of it with CBDCs? Can regulated stable coins and cryptocurrencies coexist with CBDCs? Can cryptocurrencies even add resilience to an ecosystem with CBDC? Is CBDC even necessary? There's a lot on stake here. Things like macro-financial stability, global trade, geopolitics, and world peace. Now, 
every good story must have some irony in it. The motivation behind the issuance of Bitcoin and the development of its technology, as we've seen in the beginning, was to liberate monetary policy from the control of central banks. Ironically, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are motivating the creation of CBDCs and the whole purpose of CBDCs is to strengthen central banks and fiat currencies that Bitcoin was developed to be used as an alternative. Definitely something to think about. To sum up, a CBDC is a direct claim on a central bank. It has many promises. If we'll get to see it, it won't be, to be here tomorrow, but it's developing. The motivation for its development is its many advantages, but also the legal risk, the financial risk, and, and competition coming from crypto and other nations, digital currencies. By now, it's possible to say that CBDC is not only about the technology, and it's not only about digital or programmable money. It's about a power shift from the private sector and the financial institutions to central banks. It's about shifting the control over financial infrastructure of tomorrow. It's having control inside each country and about central banks collaborating to effectively influence the global market as a whole. And now putting on the table the ethical concerns. I group them into six categories. Some of them, of course, overlap. Some of these concerns require uh, imagination skills. So please don't think of an advanced and well-established democracies like Canada, although all democracies are very fragile. So remember the difference between the direct model and the two-tier system? Adopting the direct model means that central banks would need to deal not only with the monetary model and keeping the economy stable, but also with customers, consumer due diligence, arbitration, onboarding clients, developing payment infrastructure, and ultimately expanding services well beyond their current mandate. The, consequence, the consequences of, of completely changing the financial landscape are huge, maybe too huge. And as I said before, most likely the direct model will not be implemented anywhere, but things can gradually shift toward it. And it might be implemented in some version in less democratic and liberal countries. And if this happens, we should be worried about that too. Anyways, even with the two-tier model, the concern I wish to focus is having a regulatory capture. Now, regulatory capture happens when a public authority identifies the public interest with the interest of a producer in the industry. In our case, the regulatory capture can happen when a central bank misidentifies the public interest with the interest of the producers of money. That is the interest of the central bank of themselves. The fear is that central banks may come to be dominated by the very same interest that they are in charge of regulating. It's prone to happen when a public authority concentrates too much power and responsibilities. Now, this concern has implications over the democratic supervision and oversight we'll need to have if CBDCs are implemented, especially to reevaluate the current mandate for central banks to work independently from the elected democratic governments. Second, different money for different groups. Since CBDC is programmable money, not only in the sense of smart contracts and automated transactions between machines, but also in the sense of programming its properties, it's possible to create different money for different groups. We've seen this with the distinction between wholesale CBDC and retail CBDC. The access to the wholesale currency is discussed as limited to a predefined group 
Now, wholesale CBDC is intended to a select set of licensed participants such as financial organizations. Now, be sure that I'm not saying anything against wholesale CBDC. On the contrary, I understand how valuable it is, especially for cross-border payments and settling between the financial institutions. Having said that, the ethical concern is twofold. First, it's about violating the principle of equality. It's hard to ethically justify why some groups, probably within the financial sector or those who hold close ties to regulators, will enjoy access to different form of money with different privileges, different rights, and probably different costs. Second, and very related, it might form a new kind of financial discrimination between the general public and those who have financial access to this form of money, such as high net worth individuals. This concern gets intensified when we risk that the door will be open for more types of currencies with different characteristics for different types of groups, be it privileged groups or disadvantaged groups. Imagine programmable money that is intended for convicted criminals, religious minorities, people with health problems. You get the point. It's having many kinds of different limitations or benefits all according to where the political power and financial incentives blow. And speaking about unjust discrimination, there's also the AI-related risk, and that's the third category. The implementation of data-driven algorithms for the automatic shaping of monetary policy, or parts of it, is most likely a matter of time. And anyway, such a digital system produces a lot of data. It's data about our financial transactions, arguably the most valuable data, Pun not intended, seriously. In regard to AI, we already know that problems such as biases everywhere among system designers and developers and biases in data collection in measurements, and biases in modeling, in, in, in validation exist. And also problems with the inability in many times to track and explain automatic decisions, which can be crucial when it comes to being responsible and accountable for the economy of a country. We also noticed that in some cases, the implementation of AI leads to a whole new set of problems, such as redefining the role of individual and social oversight in these complex systems, or new problems that regard human dignity, autonomy, and ultimately democracy. It's not hard to draw a line between errors in automation of uh, financial transactions and human dignity or between automating fines or automatically freezing someone's account and human autonomy. Even from a technical point of view of resilience and robustness, what happens to financial system and its data when the AI system faces a power outage or an AWS server, just an example, going down? All these problems are for sure problems for system designers and regulators, but they are likely to be felt as problems by those who are most affected by the system, the people, us. And no one is interested in any of these new AI-related problems in the heart of the national economic infrastructure, specifically not in the monetary policy. These are what I call the easy problems, to paraphrase David Chalmers. They're easy because in a certain way, we can all agree that there are problems. The hard problems of the ethics of AI are which values should be involved in the algorithms and 
and what exactly the goals that are designed into the algorithms aim to achieve. I call them the hard problems of ethics of AI simply because it's impossible for everyone to agree on the same values. We live in a value pluralistic society, which is great, but disagreements over values on a national level are, I guess, impossible to solve. Perhaps the most notable concern is privacy, and that's fourth. From security aspect, hacking the system for data theft, manipulation, or completely shutting it down is a new challenge. Its magnitude is a national cybersecurity threat. There's also the risk of data misuse by the personnel who can access the information. People who have access to sensitive information not always overcome the desire to use the access privilege for their own personal gains. And what I guess you've waited to hear, data from such a system enables surveillance. Without financial privacy, the ability to trade without a third party, governments or corporations that are involved will know who spent, how much, on what, where, and who got paid. It's not only monetizing financial data, it's surveillance in its utmost sense as described by Shoshana Zuboff. Surveillance opens the door for many of the most dystopian narratives we can imagine, especially easy to imagine this in authoritarian societies, where CBDC will, be, uh, will probably be uh, an additional instrument of government control over citizens. And this was paraphrasing a Swar Prasad from Cornell with a new book on that, that also engages with CBDC. And I hope we'll see more books emerging on this topic coming. And the last point here is the uh, constant risk of falling into surveillance. And I call this a slippery slope. Financial data will probably be integrated with data bought from data brokers or data available from other governmental agencies and from interactions that the person had with public and private services, transportation, health, shopping, YouTube. China adopted the principle of anonymity for small transactions, but even this anonymity can disappear tomorrow for them or for anyone else running such a system. One of the raison d'etre of CBDC is to prevent money laundering and criminal activities. And you can't do it without collecting data about money routes. So having this system work, no matter how, is constantly being at risk that our financial right, uh, that our privacy rights will be further shrinked. Here I grouped everything I see related to freedom and, and you'll see the overlapping with other categories. And that's the fifth category. Owners of the data can micro-target on a large scale. Authorities would be able to identify individuals and groups according to their transactions, and also to ban certain transactions, such as paying for VPN services or abortions. It's also possible to freeze financial activities or even um, to, to confiscate funds and this apply to political opponents, dissidents, human rights activists, um, social activists, probably those who organize demonstrations against their governments, and eventually to journalists, lawyers, and everyone. And in such a climate, it will also gradually become harder and harder to donate money to the wrong political party or to the wrong social cause. It will have a chilling effect. And it's an immediate threat on freedom of expression and association. Think about all the norms that were changed by social struggles that were illegal at their time. 
would the cannabis revolution have happened without the possibility to illegally buy cannabis with cash? We risk stalling social developments. Governments almost everywhere do terrible things. Just imagine these tools in the hands of governments and their corporate partners. When a government spies after its citizens for political reasons, they undermine the freedom to elect and to be elected. And it's a slippery slope to that. We're developing, we're changing, and eyes on our financial activities and of course also control might prevent it by shifting the power from the people who so far can decide what to do with their money privately to certain decision makers. We run the risk that many social norms would be enforced directly by the government rather than shaped by the people and their free culture. Altogether, this control on the financial data and activities would probably lead to accelerating the rise of a digital dictatorship, controlling people through digital means. It will enable a new scale of social engineering, the, psycholo the psychological manipulation of people. The way we process data may distinguish us may distinguish between a democracy and a dictatorship. Privacy advocate or Edward Snowden calls CBDC crypto-fascism and warns that this is the newest danger cresting the public horizon. This concern sounds awful, but in our reality, they no longer sound like science fiction, especially, and again, if you don't think of a mature democracy like Canada. The last item before concluding is short and it's about consequences. When cars were invented, no one imagined the amount of asphalt concrete that humans will pour in the cities and how cars will change humanity. So socio-ethical theories discuss these things a lot and I intend to apply a few existing concepts on CBDC. Specifically, I'll use Shannon Valor's concept of techno-social blindness and, and techno-social opacity to describe the complexity and its effect on our ability to take ethical decisions. I'll also dedicate a part to lessening some of the uncertainty by anticipating some of the concerns because we can anticipate some of the things in this case, I think. CBDC is about power and those who shape the idea and technologies are the most powerful actors in the world. It's a great example of how infrastructure for financial information technology has to do with social change and technological change, of course. It will be a mistake to ignore the innovative and positive aspects of CBDC. It will sure make some of our lives much more comfortable, but we will probably lose something. And that something is not only anonymity, but our guarantee for a free society that can change while staying free. And that something is, seems like the, 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 the adoption of CBDC puts us in a place of falling to a constant risk of, of losing the freedoms. It necessitates an open, a very inclusive and a deep public debate about our future in our already brave new world. Thank you.